I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. A strong interest in conservation got Bill Haddad interested in no-till farming. Shortly after moving to Ohio in 1973, Bill began working with other no-till pioneers and researchers in the area, such as Glover Triplett, David Van Dorn, Don Myers, and Jim Berline. In this episode, Bill joins Frank Lesseter for a wide-ranging conversation about early no-till innovations and how a dogged pursuit of understanding and excellence developed into successful practices. Without further ado, here are Frank Lesseter and Bill Haddad. We're here today talking to Bill Headed, who has uh, been involved in no-till since the early 1970s. I think I first met Bill maybe around 1973 when I made a trip down here. And he has worked for many years with no-till, and we're going to spend the day looking from a supplier viewpoint what no-till is all about. So, Bill, tell me, did you grow up in New Jersey? I know you worked there. No, I grew up in Rhode Island. Okay. I went to the University of Rhode Island, and then after graduation, you know, that Vietnam War was blowing up. I went into the service. So I, I enlisted in the Air Force and served there for about three years. Okay. What was your specialty in the Air Force? I believe it or not, aircraft technician, fuel system technician. So you're a mechanic guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Never thought I'd be that way. <laughs> so what did you do when you got out of the service? I applied to about three different organizations in ag. Uh, C.B. Geige was one. Or Geige in those days. Roman Haas and uh, sure. Chevron. And I decided to go with Chevron because of their interest in conservation, which is, you know, okay. no-till. And you, did you start out working with no-till? Yes, I did. In New Jersey? In or? New Jersey, right, in 1969. And, uh, you know, I worked with fruits and vegetables and specialty and aquatics. and But no-tillage was my passion, actually. And the reason for it is I could see then the fuel saving, the time saving, the conservation of soils. That's what intrigued me more than anything. Is, uh, is that we see results with that system. So then a few years later, you moved to Ohio? I moved to Ohio in fall of 1973. And the reason I moved up here, we had so much no-till of jaw in, in New Jersey. We ran out of, what the company said, you run out of acres. And Ohio is the land of opportunity, unlimited acres, which is true. Right. And now today you live at Danville, Ohio? I live south of Danville on a 107-acre on farm. And I've lived there since 1974. I suppose you no-till that farm? It's been no-tillage ever since uh, I got it. Continuous okay. no-tillage. And uh, one, one 16-acre field has been in no-tillage for probably over 100 years. Or, you know, without the plow. So when you came to Ohio, there wasn't a lot of no-till. There was some no-till research like at Worcester, but there weren't many farmers using it, were there? Uh, not really. There was a spattering farmers here and there that were doing it, you know, maybe by time, a limited time. And, uh, and actually, I lived up in Worcester when I first moved in. The reason for it was the father of no-tillage in Ohio was a fellow by the name of Dr. Triplett, Dr. Right. Triplett. And I, uh, I started work with him, and then I found out that my work was cut out for me. There wasn't enough really no-till acres in the eastern part of Ohio. And so I started by 
uh, putting a lot of meetings on, educational meetings, field days, tours, that type of thing. And had the opportunity to work with Dr. Sam Bone and Don Mars and Triplett and Van Doren, Van Curen, and, uh, and Bill Edwards at the Hydrological Station. I've been there. It's yep. not there anymore, but uh, yep, it's it's here. Bill so, Edwards talked at our first no-till conference on no-till and yeah, earthworms. I remember exactly. him as a speaker. Was a, Unfortunately, today hardly anybody's doing any work on earthworms anymore. No, you know, it seems like they've they're really taken for granted. In fact, my work with earthworms began way back in my college days. Uh, I had an advisor by the name of Dr. Bill, and he wanted me to repeat an experiment that was done in, in the 40s. I still got the book and I got the article. <laughs> and uh, and what I was supposed to do as a part of a paper was to duplicate what this researcher had done in the 1940s. This is before I knew what no-tillage was all about. And it involved in, into uh, counting earthworm castings in, a, in an alfalfa farm. And uh, there, was a, there was a farm at the University of Rhode Island called uh, the Narragansett alfalfa plot. It was a perpetual alfalfa for years and years, and they took care of each individual plant like it was gold. And my job was to uh, uh, collect the earthworm castings around those plants because you couldn't dig around them, you pulled the weeds out, and compare those with the work that this researcher had done in the, in the 40s. And believe it or not, the results were not too far off. The potash was higher, the phosphorus was higher, the organic matter was higher, the nutrient content was higher, the pH was higher. And I still have that book, and I still refer to the value of, of Nyquilis because of that work. And little did I know that it was gonna translate into no tillage you know, years later. But uh, I was involved in, one of the, the, the factors that really sold me on no tillage was the activity of Nyquilis. You know, we sold a, a chemical called Paraquad, and of course the residuals. And people always wondered what would happen to the night crawlers and the earthworms, they put all these residuals and toxic materials. And once you convince them that they had little effects and no tillage on the night crawlers, they're more prone to actually look at, you know, no tillage with a better viewpoint and look at the advantages for what they are. You know, the saving of fuel, time, labor, soil. I think Bill Edwards once at a visit I made to Coshocton told me, and the, the big question was, what does anhydrous ammonia do to the earthworms? And his comment was, they hear the rig coming and they get down deeper in the soil. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's true, you know, anhydrous will, will kill the nightcrawlers in that zone, but there's 30 inches that doesn't have anything in it. And nightcrawlers are very, you know, very responsive. And sure, if they, if they sense something's wrong, they'll go deeper or they'll go sideways. Uh, but even anhydrous wasn't, you know, affecting the nightcrawlers. Right. What affects the nightcrawlers uh, is the plow. The plow is the biggest detriment to the development of nightcrawlers. Right. And once uh, there was an article in the uh, uh, Geogra National Geographic magazine, and it sort of compared the work of nightcrawlers. They said if nightcrawlers don't, can work 12 months in the year, they can turn eight, uh, six inches of topsoil, invert it right. in, one, in one given year. Now, I'm not sure whether that's true or not, right. But uh, you can see what happens. They don't work all year long. They take, you know, they hibernate in the winter. And, uh, and uh, but that article is in, was in the National Geographic and also had how long it took to make one inch of topsoil. And right. they, they, they thought a top, one inch of topsoil, it would take a thousand years to make. You can destroy an inch of topsoil in one year. 
So when you came down here in 73, you had your work cut out for you. There wasn't, I mean, there a lot of no till, or a lot of conventional tillage, minimum tillage guys that didn't, there was a didn't lot, even know what no till was. The, the, the mobile plowers came and then you have the disc and, the, and then the chisels came along and, and, uh, and we had to do a lot of preaching actually and put a lot of meetings on educational seminars. And I think some of them you were familiar with the, on the Neil Springer place. Right, I've and, been there. Yep, and uh, I can remember putting maybe 70 to 80 uh, field days, educational seminars and meetings uh, to, to just convince here. But there was limited amount of no-tillage and we gauged that by the amount of paraquat that was sold. And uh, paraquat sales, uh, you know, would, would climb with the amount of no-tillage that's out there. And, uh, and uh, you know, I worked for Chevron Chemical and that was their focus was no-tillage. And, uh, and I attribute that that Chevron Chemical gave their sales reps the green light to promote no tillage, where no other company was really involved. Right. You know, but we we had a lot of partners. We had Geige and Seba and uh, the Banville people, and you know anybody that was connected here, seed companies that were helped to promote conservation tillage. We teamed up with them. Well, early on, the real supporters of no-till were Chevron and Alice Chambers. Exactly. There were, you know, and I still mention them at every meeting. I said, if you want to pay tribute, as you pay tribute to two companies that gave their uh, people the opportunity to get the no-tillage off the ground. If it wasn't for Alice Chalmers, John Deere would never have gotten in. And I can remember, Frank, in Ohio, I think in, it was 1975, University decided to invite all the, all the equipment companies down to the Fawcett Center. And there was John Deere, International Harvester, Alice Chalmers, White Equipment, and a couple of short-line companies. And I can remember sitting there and all the gurus from Ohio State, whether it was Van Doren or Triplett or, or, or Myers, and our technical people were there, and a question came up, and the international harvester, national sales manager was there, and he asked the university people how much research was behind this system. And it really upset Don Myers, where he went out there, walked out, and didn't come back in until I went back and got him to come back. And, uh, and this particular individual, stated very clearly to all of us there, he said, you know, we have enough equipment in Ohio where we can turn Ohio upside down and we don't even have to begin in the fall. We can do it all in the spring. That was his comment. <laughs> and I think my answer to him was, you don't have any no-till equipment, which is true, you know. And so things have changed since then. You know, uh, John Deere, in no uncertain terms, told us that if no-tillage was ever take off, they would have one of the better planners or drills on the market, which is true today. Two of the short liners that had a big impact the, were tie and Great Plains with no-till drills. Right, the, the tie, the story behind the tie drill, when I worked and I got full season no-till soybeans going, you know, they weren't double crop everybody except those, but I needed a drill. And, and you remember what we had, the zip and skip, yep, the zip seeder, right? right? Zip seeder, and, God, uh, you're as old as I am. Yep, and uh, <laughs> you know, out of, uh, uh, Mississippi. Mississippi, you know, and then at the Farm Science Review, uh, Paul Young, who's not with us anymore, he's uh, he passed away a few years back. We were looking at any conceivable piece of equipment we could find, and uh, and I found the tie drill. It was sitting there. It was a conventional drill, and I kept on saying to Paul Young, I said, you know what? With very little effort, I think we can convert this drill into an hotel drill. And Paul Young says, Bill the company would even look at us. But I was persistent, and I can remember approaching 
John Ty. John Ty. And, uh, and the other guy was uh, Rogers, was the sales manager. And I told him what was on my mind. And he said, uh, give me your booth number. And we, if we're interested, we'll hear at the end of the day. Uh, 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 Rogers, I think his name was Joe Rogers. Then. Yeah, that's right. Joe Rogers, he came in and he says, you know, we're interested, what can we do? We want to sell more tie drills. I said, if you can convert this to no-till drills, we'll push them to the hill. And we had a meeting at the Hilton Inn North in North Columbus. There was Joe Rogers there, John, J John uh, Ty Sr. and John Ty Junior was there, our tech rep, Don Myers, and uh, anybody that we could gather, gather to help put this here, and we covered. And, uh, and I remember that year, to make a long story short, John Ty was able to put together at least 600 rows, mm -hmm. you know, manufacturing, right. and, and those were all sold. And the next year, their full capacity was 600 drills in the whole U.S., and that's all they could man manufacture, and they took off. And to this day, I still see a tie drill here and there. I remember a drill story I have is I went to England in about 1974 or so and visited with the ICI people who really right. started with drill. Paraquat. Yeah. And the Melro drill. Yep. I saw it sitting there. Yep. And they said, this thing works well. And I came home and I called up the Melro people. And they didn't know what I was talking about. Yep. That's sort of, uh, yeah. In fact, uh, one of the, the, the first drills was the Melro and Chevron bought uh, a couple of drills per state just to launch it. Neil Springer had a Melrose drill, the old Melrose drill. And uh, we worked with that, but it was expensive. It was $14,000 when everything else was five, $6,000. And, uh, and uh, we, you know, we worked with that thing. And in fact, we, we took that tie, uh, uh, you know, uh, Melrose or Clark Equipment then. That's who- Yeah, they owned the Melrose. They, they owned Melrose and they brought a sales rep by the name of, uh, forget his name up there, but he came down and the manager pulled the drill with his souped up Oldsmobile car all the way from <laughs> North Dakota and brought it to the Farm Science Review. And, and it was funny, we demonstrated that drill and, and we had a couple of bags of alfalfa and you had to pay to demonstrate a drill. They just said, if you can drill it after hours, right. it's fine. And, uh, and that took off and then clock equipment sort of took the ideas of that Melrose drill and produce the uh, Lilliston drill. And the Lilliston drill was a, a far improvement and they can sell it locally. And then uh, the other drill that came in, you probably remember Sam Moore and the Moore Uni drill. Yep. And that was being demonstrated. Came from Ireland, right? Uh, yep, Balamone Island. And uh, Sam Moore came up here and and of course he was telling me how it worked in, in, in Ireland and it was the key thing. And and so we bought, we bought two of them and uh, the two drills came in on C train to Danville Seed Supply. They became the sole distributor on them. And they, they all, you know, local community helped us. Put, we put the drills together. And actually, one of the flaws of the unit, unit drill, there was four, three quarter inches apart. And uh, very uh, residue clearance was poor. So we had to take every other row off. And then uh, this is when I started working actually with the clock equipment to produce the uh, Lilliston drill, which was far superior, not the answer to everything, but far superior to the more uni drill. And, uh, and that took off until John Deere came out with their, uh, you, you know, uh, drill. And well, when we started No-Till Farmer in 1972, we, 
there wasn't any really good data on, on no-till, so we surveyed the state agronomists of the Soil Conservation Service. And we came up with 3.2 million acres of no-till in 1972, and that's grown to maybe 106 million acres today. But in the 70s, it, it progressed. We got better equipment, we got better herbicides. But I think two things that happened that really helped us was John Deere coming out with the 750 drill mm -hmm. and Roundup. Right, and the 7,000 planter. Yes, that's the other yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, Roundup came on the scene and then uh, and also the, the education, you know, right. the meetings, the field days, all combined together to propel, you know, no tillage. Today, I'm not sure how many acres there are, but a heck of a lot more acres than we began. So what were the big problems in selling no-till back in the early 70s? Well, in the early 70s was lack of knowledge. Uh, uh, insect slugs was one. Uh, weed control issues was another one. And uh, selecting varieties was another issue. And, and really, equipment was a, a big issue. Alice Chalmers was the only one right. that had equipment available. And, uh, and the, the lack of expertise at the retail level and the uh, chem chemical, there's only two companies really, when we mentioned that, Chevron and, and Alice Chalmers, the rest of them just went along. If it worked, Phenotal is right. fine, if it didn't, here. But I, I'd say uh, just educating the farmer, spending a lot of time one-on-one -on, -one, uh, on the farm, working with soil and water, working with extension service, university, uh, editors like yours that wrote about it and uh, and it, you know it's sort of propelled where today when you say no tillage everybody knows what it is. Well the seed companies when we used to go to them and ask them what corn hybrids are best for no-till they would say all of them. Are. Exactly exactly and we knew better like I told you <laughs> in the, outside the field I used to rattle off all the varieties. Pioneer was the big one I can rattle out 35, 17, 35, 18 35, 35, 35, 29, all of them. You know, I knew them by heart. Today, I couldn't. I, what I, made them good? Well, they, they were more conducive to, to no tillage. You know, they're quick emergence, cold tolerance. And we saw that today with right. varieties, with the, with, with the uh, LG varieties. You, you know, to me, you, you need one that has good tolerance to cold weather, good emergence, and of course, good yield. And we didn't know much about the varieties in the old days. We always tested the ones we knew. Uh, DeKalb had a couple of varieties and Pioneer, but I can remember Pioneer in this county. When I came in, the question I asked on my farm, the neighbor, I said, what's the best hybrid old third Pioneer 3780? I asked them why, and they said it yields well for that hybrid, and it matures early. And so I put 3780, but I put another long season hybrid, and uh, I found out very quickly why it matured early. Southern corn leaf, leaf blight would hit it. <laughs> And so nobody knew what the disease is, but the people in the South knew what it was. And when we sent it there, they said it was corn leaf blight. And the only varieties that Pioneer had that showed some degree of tolerance or resistance were the long season varieties, 120 day. And I remember Pioneer putting their meeting on at the community center and, uh, and uh, you know, trying to answer the question. And, and this is why I mentioned, I learned very quickly which varieties because Pioneer kept on dropping one variety and coming up with another one, hopefully, hoping that one variety would be tolerant to, to no-till. And what killed it, uh, southern corn leaf light attacked conventional corn just as well as no-till corn. In fact, in my opinion, it was worse conventionally because 
you know, you had uh, sustainability problems here along, if you take 36 through uh, newcomers down, all that stuff is flat here and it was hit high with, with Southern corn leaf blight. Today, they got better varieties. What it took a long 25 years to come up with varieties, uh, somewhat tolerant to Southern corn leaf blight. Driving around and looking at fields, no-till fields this morning, you told me that it was important to you early on to take responsibility for making sure a no-tiller succeeded. I mean, you didn't say, oh, it's a seed company, it was the equipment. You just decided that whatever it took to make work, you were gonna get involved and make it work. Can you elaborate on that? You know, we got a lot of no-tillers going. But you know, in many cases, the farmer would call and says, you know, I got a poor stand. You know, he wants to know why. I got slugs. He wants to know what to, what to do with slugs. Uh, he's got weed control issues. He wants to know how to hear. You need, you need to answer all these. I think if you just mull over these things and not give the farmer what the farmer wants, he'll just go back to what he knows best. He can have a hundred problems with conventional tillage. He'll still go back to conventional tillage. No tillage is new. And so if they had a slug problem, so you need to educate them on how to solve the slug problem. I think we came out with a homemade recipe with majorol, cracked corn, molasses, mm -hmm. and, and beer, and that worked out very well. And then they put a damper after a few years. And, uh, and then we started working with deadline bullets and in fact, improved the deadline bullets from bullets to mini pellets. And it took a lot of work actually with Chevron and I got involved in it up to the hill because I knew if you lost your stand to, to the slugs that discourage you, even today, Frank, if the guy goes no tillage and he sees slugs on just a few acres, he'll condemn everything. Actually, I'm just gonna go uh, conventional. So it's important for somebody to solve the grower's problem. Uh, today, the farmer wants to see an individual that recommended something to be responsible for his recommendation. And you can't just say, you know, uh, water hemp is water hemp. I can't do anything about it. That, that is not acceptable. You need to spend time with them to promote an accepted practice, no tillage, to see the results that affects his bottom line. And uh, uh, that's very important. Success breeds success. Failure and no tillage is, is not an option. I saw a research paper a month or two ago from a graduate student at Virginia Tech. And she did a study on why, why people are not no-tilling. And the major thing she came up with in Virginia was if there's slug problems, we're not gonna no-till. Exactly, yep. That is true all and over the place. I, early on in the 70s, slugs were a big problem. And in a lot of areas of the country, we got away from them for years. And yeah. now, at yeah. least in, out yeah. east, they're back. Yeah. If the guy's got a slug problem in corn stalks, he's going to blame corn stalks. If he's got it in soybean stuff, he's going to blame. If he's got it in rye, he's going to here. Slugs occupy a certain portion of the field. They're active in a certain portion of the field. And some years, not every year, they have their highs and lows. And if you have a slug problem like weed control, you apply a remedy. And deadline mini pallets are there. And uh, if somebody says to me, it's too expensive to use a... I said, how... how affordable is it to replant, right? Right. It's going to cost you more. So to apply, a, a, say, the mini pellets or a slug bait on a few acres up there is, is, is an option that farmers need to look at. Losing soil, you never get your soil back. If you lost a half inch in five years, you'll never get that half ounce back. 
you can always plant corn. Right. You, right. You can buy corn. You can't buy soil. Soil is lost forever. Right. And uh, and I've always looked at it as solve the growers' problem. One on to one, if you have to. On the phone is fine, but visiting him we'll on his right. farm is always the best way. You you get, you get to learn from him as well as give him bits of your wisdom. But you also made this work with showing farmers what can be done by numerous field days, right? You yes. were big on field days. Yeah, I, I was big, you know, t taking model farms, taking a farm that just like the Springer farm. I can remember people's, you know, the four and a half division natural resource told me, if you work with this individual, uh, Bill, you'll kill no tillage. He says, the <laughs> rabbits have to pack a lunch and get across. He says, don't work with them. Of course, what's more important than his soil was his enthusiasm. And his yields, you couldn't help but bring them up. You know, he's getting 60 bushels. And if I brought him up to 80, 90, 100, you know, it was good. And he sold a lot of no-tillage out of all, and became a consultant like 10, 12 other consultants in Ohio and, and also Michigan. And he still, this was a 1970, I believe I started work on 75. And his, his farm has still continued no-tillage since then. So he's kind of retired. Neil Springer's kind of retired, but he rents his farm out, but he insists on no-till? Absolutely, you know. If, if, if you don't know till it's in the contract. Right. You know, my farm, I ran it to the same grower, it's in the contract. Cover crops, no tillage. You, you know, the, the thing is going to make your, your, your farm uh, sustainable for, you know, forever and ever. And that means cover right. crops is a, is a key item. Let's talk a minute about your career. You started with Chevron. And then you stayed with the same company, but it sounds like you worked for six companies because their names kept changing. Well, I worked for Chevron and then Valen. That's it. Okay. That, yeah. That's it. You know, uh, you know, I mean, the same company it just changed the name. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we used to work with ICI. Yep. And ICI had Paraquat. And when, when the contract came out with them, Paraquat ICI decided, well, they wanted it back and they were willing to buy yeah. Chevron out. Right. At a fire sale. Chevron was going to put up with it. And they decided they'll have a joint venture with Sumitomo of Japan, which is a research company. And, uh, and they, they formed a joint venture called Valent. And then about several years into it, Chevron decided they went out of the ag and Sumitomo bought the entire, you, you know, half. Did you stay really pushing NOTA when you were with Valent? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we had, you know, we lost Paraquat. Right. Right. But we came out with a product called Select, uh, Cobra. And then you had the residuals, you know, Fierce XLT, uh, you know, a bunch of residuals up here, and plant growth regulators. So I can remember, uh, Frank, and you know, when I was young, I didn't know any better, but I remember at a trade show, ICI had a billboard, you know, electronic billboard that said, ICI will be the sole distributor of Paraquat in the whole world. And the ICI rep, by, you probably know him, John Walker, and he came up to me and he says, Bill, Hey, there's nothing left for you with Valen. You might as well come up with ICI. And I, I was so storm-headed down there, and I said, you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather dig a ditch than move over with you guys. And, uh, and we had a uh, manager that was on the back. He says, Bill, you just burned the bridge. What the rumors are with Chevron, I mean, Valen is going to be around for a couple of years. Right. Uh, today, they're, they're a $700 billion company, you know? so. So the, the research, and that's what intrigued me. 
and I didn't know any better. I mean, going to the oil company, you know, oil was not my, right. you know, my business. And so, but I had an opportunity to work with a lot of companies. You know, I worked with Siva Geige, Geige, uh, you know, BASF with their chemistry, DuPont with their chemistry to make whatever system I had uh, successful. BASF is another example of someone who got serious about no-till right. and made no-till soybeans work. Right. Now, no-till soybeans, the first no-till full-season soybeans were right here in Ohio. The first no-till soybeans. And one of the reasons why no-till full-season soybeans never took off, because everybody felt you had to have an atrazine for full-season soybeans to make them work. And how do I know that? Because that's what Triplett told me. <laughs> and so I said, why do we have to have an atrazine? He says, how do you ever kill the sod or the grass? That's what no-tillage. Right. And so I began actually with no-till full-season soybeans by using what? Lasso. And you had Synchro came on the scene and uh, you had Amabin, and you know, you had the old products and, uh, and, and here, but the limiting factor was, again, drills. You know, we had planters and you had to split the middles and, and uh, those soybeans were, full season were very successful. We didn't have, you know, one of the rules, don't put soybeans in a sock. You can put them after corn stalks or after, don't put them into clover, you know, grass sock. Because in the old days, you put wheat in, you always put sweet clover, red clover, alcyte clover as a cover crop, then you planted corn into it. And with soybeans, you always put them after corn. Double crop soybeans took off in southern Illinois and Virginia and even in southern Ohio. And the reason for it, they took wheat off. They could come in, you know, it's not a sod, you know, the stubble was off. They come in with paraquat and they, they put lasso in there and they can plant no, uh, no double crop soybeans. All the weeds were up then, right. you know. So, and full season beans really took off faster than anything else I, faster than corn actually. And you know, and you ask you the reason why. Well, you're planting 200,000 seeds per acre. Generally, you're planting them later than corn, so the weather's much better, it's warmer. And uh, we didn't have near the insect problems then as we had with rye and army worms, that type of thing. And the drill finally started come on stream, you know, the, the Moriani drill, the Thai drill, the, the Velero drill, the John Deere drill, and it sort of progressed. Right now, I would say a no-till soybeans are a big item in, in Ohio, full season bees. Not so much double cropped anymore, not, not less you're growing wheat in Southern Ohio. I was amazed driving down here yesterday from uh, Milwaukee. Uh, it's a late season, there were flooded fields. But it seemed to me that there were more soybeans in the ground than there was corn in some areas. Yeah, yeah they're planting soybeans as early as corn. You know, they changed, you know, varieties have improved. And uh, one good thing about planting real early, you can always have a chance to replant. Mm -hmm. That's what I say. If you plant late, you got one chance. It better work. Right. But if you plant early on the acres are well-drained, more often than not, you're going to be successful. And if you got a portion of a field that ground out, whatever, you can always replant, still be on time. You know, same thing holds for true, true for corn. We'll rejoin Bill and Frank in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment across the U.S. and Canada. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, 
The company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. We're going to talk this morning about how cover crops can earn a 266% return with continuous no-till. And cover crops definitely involve extra expenses, but the family-owned Rulon Enterprises in Arcadia, Indiana, have found they more than pay their way with 6,000 acres of no-till corn and soybeans. In the fall of 2014, cover crops were seeded on 3,500 acres, and at a cost of $26 per acre for seed and planting, the total cost was almost $92,000. But when they looked at the payback, they figured out the benefits were $69.17 per acre, and that included the need for less fertilizer, higher corn and soybean yields, fewer disease concerns, drought protection, a reduction in erosion, increased conservation stewardship program government payments, and improved soil quality. So they calculated a 266% return on their investment. So we got uh, concerns right now with glyphosate or Roundup. Monsanto sold out to Bayer and there's a number of court cases going on. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, herbicide resistant corn and soybeans for Roundup or glyphosate. Uh, if, if this doesn't stay, if somehow we get restricted on the use of this, can Paraquat or Gramoxin come back and play a play a role in this? Uh, you know, no till. You know, it has on annual annual uh, you know grasses and broadleaf weeds. Uh, Paraquat still a good good compound. Uh, you, you got Banful, Dicamba resistant soybeans. Uh, you got some darn good residuals right now, availant. Not oh, I, I don't work for them anymore, but they got one called Fierce XLT. It's got re three residuals. You can combine it with with Paraquat, you can combine it with Select. I mean, you still got here, but you have to plan on these things. Right. Liberty Link is, is another one that you can use pre, or you can use post depending on what, what variety of soybeans you have. So there's always ways to solve here. You got a, you got a water hem problem a, or, or a, a, you know, a mare stale problem. You can always plant corn because corn, you can get in there and use 2,4-D. You can use Banville Post mm -hmm. and that's the key. Before you go to soybeans, make sure you control the weeds and corn. You don't want to take a filthy cornfield right. and go to soybeans next year. You'll have weeds. So, you know, Roundup, I think, is uh, overused like everything else. And I'll guarantee you that you're going to see the same thing. 2,4-D, Frank, isn't doing what it used to do when I recommended it. Mm -hmm. I was the first person in New Jersey to use 2,4-D to get full season weeds going, you know. And believe it or not, one of the first labels was for soybeans at two ounces. Yeah. You, you know, and uh, before the time of computers, I, I lived in, in Heightstown. Rutgers University was just up the road in Princeton. And, you know, I would go with the old I, uh, IBM cards and try to fish yeah. out. You know, what the heck can you do to have Maristale? Maristale began out east. In 1970, one of my biggest problems with Soybeans, guess what? It was Maristale. When I came to Ohio in 74, the first question I asked, do you have any horseweed? 
And Paul Young said, oh, we got a whole suite all over the place. <laughs> well, in 74, I started looking for it. I couldn't find it. And I said, where is it? Well, his horse weed was Maristale. You know, we called it right. We called it horse weed here. He didn't, he didn't know a thing about Maristale. So uh, resistance was there right from the beginning. You know, you put paraquat on the Maristale, they come right back. But 24D at a pint to two pints would work well. And I remember, in order for me to be successful with soybeans, full season soybeans, I had to have that 24D label. The laws were lax. I made an appointment with the Department of Ag, and the, the, the uh, head of the Department of Agriculture was Phil Lamp, Dr. Phil Lampy. And you know, you're lucky to get in there and see him in the office. But a young county agent I walked in his office, put a slide presentation on, and showed him the advantages of no tillage, and his comment was, what can I do? And I said, we got, we got this herbicide called 24D, and we need to get that label. And, he says, that's why we have these uh, land-grant universities that you work with Rutgers. Yeah. Well, Rutgers was anti, <laughs> they, they don't want to work with it. John yeah. Mead was anti, Dr. Mead was anti-no-till. They didn't want to do anything with no-tillage. And he grabbed the phone and called Rutgers and explained to him my, my problem. And he was wondering when 240 was to get into the weed control guide. And guess what? John Mead says it'll be the next printing. <laughs> that's how it got. It, it, no EPA, nothing. Yeah, yeah that's how it got. Yeah. When I came in here in Ohio, they didn't even know a thing about 24D. They had it on alfalfa, but they didn't have it on soybeans. You know, Don Wires had it registered on alfalfa, and it was easier on soybeans because you know alfalfa was very sensitive to 24D. Right. You know, so uh, so you know, yes. Well, what can you do? You know, you need to rotate chemicals use multiples, uh, you, you know, watch what you have and come up with solutions and don't let weeds go to seed. You know, that's, you know, I mean, we have a lot of successes with no tillage. So when you uh, got started with full season soybeans, you, the benefits seem to be better for drilling than planting in 30 inch no, rows? Oh yeah, the, the only disadvantage is the drills. Yeah. When I came out there, you know, we'd use a planter and split the middles. Right, we use a sip seeder, you know, you can work all day and maybe get five, six acres in until the, uh, uh, the more unit drill came out and you had to use every other one, it was a challenge. And then the Melrose and the tie, and they increased ever since then. I remember being down to a field day once and I think the, the guys who owned SI Distributing owned a John Deere dealership. And they had, they had the inner seeder units to do uh, soybeans in like 15 inch rows. Yeah, well they came out, John Deere came out with the power till seeder, do you recall that? Yes, I do, it didn't last long. It didn't last long and they were they were very stubborn and they thought they can sell this thing to renovate pastures and you can plant soybeans and all that and Chevron, we would meet with them and explain to them that we needed something in Eastern Ohio, they gotta renovate these acres, 60, 70 horses the most this thing you need a minimum of 100 horses and then the cutters would wear out 50 mm -hmm. acres or maybe 100 acres and it would cost 600 dollars to repoint them it, it killed that deal uh we sold quite a few of them up here but they they just sat around they john deere took a real shellacking and it set back the development of a drill for a number of years before john deere would forget their right. mistake <laughs> and i can remember the university of kentucky that was yeah. their idea and uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania and Ohio, they would get together, we'd have the meeting and they'd, 
that have a freaking war, you know, amongst each other, you know, and and uh, that, that that cost John Air millions of dollars to develop and get it on the market. In my no-till history book from uh, Maverick to Momentum, there's a picture in there of that John Deere power drill. I had taken it to the University of Kentucky field. Sure. Day. Yep. I remember here, we, when I demonstrated that, I'd have a blow horn and I'd say, I want everybody away from the back of this drill. <laughs> and, uh, and they'd say, why? I said, away. And if you lost a tool 30 years ago, you found out exactly where the tool was because it would grab it. Yeah. And what killed that drill? was, do you remember when we had a shortage of baling twine and they went to the plastic? Yeah, I remember that. But yeah, and th that thing, if you went through an, uh, a hay field or here, it, you would have a ball of twine. No kidding. And uh -huh. you need, a blowtorch could take it out. That killed it right there. I mean, you can use it in a pasture because, you know, farmers didn't pick up the, the baling twine. It was all over the place. Right. And, and the plastic lasted for years. It wouldn't break down. So uh, the, the, the history of, uh, of John Deere got hit twice, the grassland drill and the power till cedar. Mm -hmm. And that, that set their development five, six, seven years. You know, I remember that very clearly. In the early days on full season soybeans, you said you were planting 220,000 seeds per acre. We've got some research today that says you can cut that way down. We got a few farmers saying, man, I'm getting by with 75,000 seeds per acre. What are you recommending these days? Well, you know, I recommend depending on whether you're planting early or late, whether you're in seven-inch rows or 30-inch rows. Right. And uh, I like to see, in, uh, you know, in 30-inch rows, if you're planting, I like to see five, six beans per foot. You know, if I'm planting early, real wet soil condition, I like to increase the rate by 10, 15%. So what rate would that be? Uh, you know, about 180,000. Okay. You know, uh, you know, 180, 150. You know, you could you could get away 120, 70. Is uh, you can you can do that if you knew your ground and you went slow and you didn't go 10 miles an hour and you had flat ground and you didn't have residue. But uh, yeah, you can you can you, all you need is according to Jim Berline, 40,000 equally spaced plants yes. per acre. But the reason you go with a higher rate is. To, to make up for the shortcomings of the drill, the soil, the wetness, the coldness, and, and also to, to canopy, you know, much quicker. Well, you, you, know, you can get away with, uh, you know, the minimum is, I like to see, 120, 130,000, you know. So a corn planter, a no-till corn planter today is pretty much used for no-tilling corn. You might, some people are doing soybeans with it, but that's about it. But you get a you get a no-till drill to, to do soybeans, then all of a sudden you're doing cover crops, you're doing wheat, you're doing right. barley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's uh, two, schools of th two schools of thought. You know, you need to have a planter and a drill. Today, the large farmers will have a 16-row planter with 15-inch rows. And, and the reason for it, you get a, a drill. I always said a drill, you can't go wrong with a drill. Right, it, you know, you cover the highs and lows, the skips and whatever. A planner, you can be either completely right or completely wrong. If you set it down for, for, for an inch and a half and you went three inches down or two inches down, you could be wrong on a lot of acres where the drill is all over the board. Mm -hmm. So there's benefits to each, but the, 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 the grow in my place and Neil's place, he's got a 16 row uh, corn planter and a 16 row soybean planters with 
split, so you, you get 15 inch rows. You have a better stand and, and better equidistance. They still haven't really made a drill that will equally space the seed. I know in England, as an example, they got drills that can space wheat seed, right? Here it dribbles, mm -hmm. you know? You have one seed on top of the other. So there's advantages and disadvantages, but you're right. A, a John Deere drill or whatever drill, you can use it to plant wheat, rye, soybeans. It's, it's versatile, you know, but people have a, a planter and, and the size of acres. You, you, you're talking today when I started, you know, 500 acres was a big farm. Today, five acres is, isn't even a part-time farmer. You know, they have 1,500, 2,000 acres, they still have a job. And, and so things, things have changed. Right, I know. I, we talked to no-tillers with 1,800 acres. Yeah. There's no, there's no hiring of labor other than in harvest. Maybe the yeah. guy's wife helps him out sure. or whatever. The other thing that I think is interesting with no-till is, first of all, no-tillers are innovators. They're going to try new ideas. But so many of them have invested in self-propelled sprayers. And part of it is they, they can't get the custom guys to do it exactly when they want it done. Mm -hmm. But I think what this has done is led to more trips over the field with fungicides, insecticides, and over-the-top herbicides than ever before. I mean, you'll get a guy with 2,000 acres that's spraying 6,000 acres sure. during the year. Uh, today, they, they have the big guys, they have their own sprayer. Right. As a backup to a custom applicator. Right. You know, I got, he's, he's got a rogator, mm -hmm. you know. He can spray 100 acres in three, four hours. Right. And get it done. When I used to spray, <laughs> it took me two days, two and a half days if the weather was right. Right. You know, you know a 40-foot boom or a 30-foot boom. Uh, right. You know, today, I mean, they can, they can spray an awful lot of acres. We got 120-foot booms or more today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I started, I started with 20 feet and moved to 40, and right. then uh, the rigs got into 60. And, uh, you know, today, you know, it could be 100, 120 feet. What you about... Know cover crops for no-tillers in this area? Uh, you, the, generally, the no-tillers in this area, livestock area, they, they like to take, if you're a dairy guy or a livestock, you take corn, if you need it for silage, you can immediately come in and put rye in. Then you can put your manure on when the rye is, is up. Or you can put your manure on first and then, you know, seed. But the trick is, get it soon after you take the uh, corn stalks. And then they can feed the rye, rye before it the heads, mm -hmm. it's very nutritious, so they can use it. Some of them will take it off and round bale it, just like hay, you know, and, and store it. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, as far as, say, just corn, soybeans, no livestock's involved, you take the corn off, and uh, and especially soybeans. If you took soybeans off, rye is, is probably the least expensive, except for this year. Wheat is a, is a second. You know, mm -hmm. there's two crops you can put in after soybeans that are successful, rye and wheat. You know, anything else is a hit and miss because you can plant rye way up to mid-October, first week in November, still be successful. Wheat is the same thing. You can fly it on, you can fly rye on, you can fly wheat. I like to fly wheat on if I'm flying wheat versus rye. And the reason for it's heavier, it takes longer for it to germinate, you're not at the mercy of, of, of the weather, you know. 
Uh, if, you, if you got wheat as a crop, you got a choice. If you're in an area where you double crop soybeans, you can double crop soybeans. If not, that is the time to get in and put clover. You got red clover, alsi clover, uh, yellow blossom, sweet clover in there. And that'll produce 70, 80, 100 pounds of nitrogen. And the sweet clover is deep rooted. That was one of the ways in the old days when we had a lot of wheat and didn't cro double crop soybeans to get some extra nitrogen. And, uh, and, and today, you know, not enough wheat is being, and where they raise wheat, they put double crop soybeans. You take all the southern states, southern Ohio here, they'll, they'll put soybeans in after wheat comes off. Right. And then come back and put, you know, rye in. But it's important to keep everything covered. You know what I mean? If it's, if it's green, it's making something for you. Anything that's green is what tying up carbon, making organic matter, recycling, fertilizer that normally is there left over. So there's a lot of benefit provides the night crawlers with a ready food supply. You know, people forget that. And also the microbes. Soybean stubble breaks down a lot quicker than than rye. And the reason for it's high nitrogen, low carbon. Where rye would be low nitrogen, high carbon, not unless you kill it early. And we saw we saw, it, saw mm -hmm. that today. But you need to provide night crawlers with a source of food. What starves them to death is not having enough cover. You know, I've seen night crawlers collect, believe it or not, pebbles and make a mound out of pebbles. Right. Think they can do something with them, you know, because of lack of what? Organic matter. So some of the diehard no-till purists in farther west than the Corn Belt, which don't have any livestock, would say you shouldn't be taking that rye off for forage. That that protects the soil so much, but people here are still getting some protection, aren't they? Oh yes, they are. And and you know if they take if they take rye off, if you're livestock, they feed it right. Manure, mm -hmm. manure goes on. Okay. You know today we we talked to ten thousand gallons of right. manure. That's a lot of that's a lot of manure there. So I'm not opposed to to anybody that thinks taking rye off and not putting something back. I would not take rye off and sell it okay. and not put anything back. Right. You know, I, I, I agree with them 100%. Well, it used to be the same with double cropping uh, soybeans after wheat. Some people would bale the straw and sell yeah, it. Right. Yeah, I, I don't want to bale corn stalks, not unless I put manure back in and the cover crop. I don't want to do the same thing with soybean. And you know what? I was all, always anti this here where you you know you can take the straw and sell it and all that you right. know you can't make something out of nothing right and, and to me if you want to keep your organic matter high you need a living cover crop that's going to make something for you rye has a good root system so if you take the top off there's still and i like to cut rye six to eight inches not down to the stubs and, and then what it's it's fallacy if you just leave it and don't put a don't, don't take advantage of a of a legume or or, or or something else in it either double crop soybeans double crop soybeans is fine because it leaves 40 pounds it leaves residue but you got to remember to come back and put you know rye in and, uh, and I think this is where where farmers are dying for information and just give them ideas you know I can go to Stark County right which is not too far from here. And call on Durham in there. They take the silage off, and their cover crop is weeds. 
And I start discussing it with them, like, you didn't know about Rye, you know, so-so is doing it here. And they, nobody's seen them on that. I said, where's the retailers? Where's the, the salt conservationists? Where's the extension agents? Of course, Combs counties don't have extension agents. And the retailers are strapped to the hilt trying to get what they have done. And so there's nobody to sit down with that grower unless he's got a neighbor he can rely on for information. I mean, that's the way it is. And I, I told you, the soil conservationist, state conservationist here, when he asked me, he says, Bill, we spent all this money and we don't have very much to show for it. How did you, how did you get no tillage off the ground when we know God darn well you didn't have the money? You know, I said, belly to belly, face to face, education, being responsible for your recommendations. Of course, his comment was, the salt and water, uh, we're not allowed to make any, we're not allowed to make any recommendation. I said, wait a minute, you, you talk the grower into going no tillage, he's got a problem, who's he gonna go for? The retailers get too busy, he didn't make the recommendation, he's gonna go to you. If you're not allowed, why talk him into something that you can't solve? And so I try to give him advice and he says, well, will you come work for us? I said, you know what, I'm not looking for another career. I said, my career is, is near over, but I can tell you what you need to do is hire a contractor that's well-versed in no-tillage to where you can tell this grower to go to this contractor. I mean, that's the only way you're gonna get no-till off the ground. People, you know, we had consultants. You know, why did we have consultants? Because we knew that good consultants, that a firm handle on no-tillage. These were farmer consultants. Right? Yeah, just like Neil Springer. Right. You know John Scherer, you know, uh, you know Dave Brandt, and and we educated them. We'd bring them in there three times a year, and go over this thing so they don't go one way. You know, we wanted success breeds success. If you have a failure, one failure will discourage ten people, ten farmers. One success can maybe get you three or four. You know, and so it was real important for us to train these consultants and they enjoyed it. They said these were some of the best meetings they went to. It was down down to earth, you know, we covered whatever ails them, you know, mm -hmm. and we expect and then these consultants have somebody to go to. Right. They had the Chevron rep, or the Chevron rep couldn't figure it out. He got a tech rep or he knew a university guy. So so it's not a one 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 person that can solve, you know, every challenge. You know, everybody, there's somebody that has an answer for something. I wish you can get a magic formula somewhere and say, you know, just just get this app and it'll tell you everything. You, you're not gonna get that. So this morning you took me by a field for a dairy operation, 700 or so cows. It had been in 30, had been in continuous corn for 30 years. They'd used cereal rye as a cover crop for 30 years. They put manure on. But what's interesting to me is our editors a week or so ago wrote a headline called Seven Ways to Terminate a Cover Crop Without Glyphosate. Now, you, you showed me today how he had used a manure drag line, mm -hmm. which is practically like a roller. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, he's got manure and lots of it, you know, 10,000 gallons per acre, and his drag line is serves like a, like a roller. I mean... Yeah. 
But you know, the timing is critical. You know, when you use that, you know, if the rye is near head, that means it's nearly completed its life well, cycle. Well, he had no-tilled the corn, I think, May 1, and then they drag-lined it exactly. May 8th yep. or so. Now, I'm not recommending that. He, he lucked out because okay. if, if the corn is too tall and then you're going to damage it, the corn was little, uh-huh. just like a row gate or going through yeah. a field of corn like this. You can go over it and yeah. it'll stand up. And, uh, you know, you know, I like to terminate rye, you know, like, like here, the other places where they planted green, right? Within ten, if it's Roundup ready, they come in with Roundup and, and kill it. You know, Roundup is very slow. You know, it might take 10 days before right. you see the results. Where paraquats, real quick, where you can't put paraquat if the corn is up, you know? Right. So these are decisions you, you need to make having a game plan. But, uh, but there's nothing wrong with planting in green if it's wet. A lot of the growers uh, planted green this year, they said it was the best conditions that they could have considering the weather they had. They got in there, they had good footing, and if it wasn't for no tillage, they, they couldn't get in there. And I'm thinking year around, you'll see some worked up fields, they're still worked up, and a worked up field is gonna absorb a lot of moisture. You know, I'm not sure whether you remember the paraplow that ICI tried to launch. Are you familiar with the paraplow? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. That's another tool. Came from England. From England, right. And, uh, and uh, I forgot the name of the company that was promoting it, but it was ICI behind it. We had two ICI technicians that came in from England. And I ran around in, in, Mar- in Marion County. It was just two plows, that's all it was. And, uh, and they wanted some demos. So, and uh, they said, the fall, you fracture the soil, fine, you know. And you need a lot of horsepower. You got to explain what paraplow is for our listeners. Paraplow is a is a plow that actually doesn't turn the soil over; it goes down and just lifts the right. soil up. It frac- it's supposed to fracture the soil, loosen it up. But you got to do it when conditions are ideal in the fall. So we did pick conditions are ideal, and it was a prototype. And I don't know how many shear pins I went through on one <laughs> field, but I uh, it's Alice Chalmers. Wouldn't even come out and look at it. He says, any, any unit can break this many shear pits. I don't want to see them. You know, and, and, and we put the plots out, right? And of course, the ICI specialists, they came in the spring, and, and uh, there was another company that was making this. Thing. Yeah, and I can't think what the name yeah, of it I, was. I can't, but they were out in Northern Illinois. Yeah, they, they came in, and, and they, they had their uh, soil penetrometers and all this, and I took them the field. And honest to God, there was water laying in the area that wasn't paraplowed. And no water, right right to the line, no water. Yeah. So uh, they went in there with a penetrometer, you know, and when they walked into that area that was paraplowed, they came out like soil stuck to their boots in there. Which area do you think was planted first? The area where the water was laying, evaporating, where it was paraplowed, with poor drainage, guess what? It's still poor drainage, except it wasn't laying on the surface. It was down below. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that killed it right there. So you don't see it. So so the paraplow was an ideal situation for certain soils. But if you don't have drainage, good drainage, that thing isn't going to drain your soil. All it does is loosen the soil. So it's like a sponge versus a, a rag. Yeah. And uh, that, that killed it right there. And I remember the name of the company. They came in there and they was, I mean, they were devastated when they went in there and seen the side by side. You know, and I had 
tell you the truth, I wanted to no-till Marion County. You know, I could use cover crops and, uh, and, and the center of gravity was that thing was atrocious to try to load it up on a, on a trailer or whatever. But that's another tool that came in. Cover crops around here, are they pretty much uh, wheat or cereal rye or are we seeing mixes of cover you, crops? You, you see basically rye and, and I'll give you the reason for it. I mean, there's a lot of mixes. Rye after soybeans is a sure thing. After silage corn is a sure thing. If you eat it for feed. It's <clears> cheap. It's cheap. Right. Right. I'm not sure it's going to be cheap this year because right. Dakota, not Dakotas, but Canada, they couldn't get the rye in. So wheat would be a substitute, you know, and wheat is shorter. So if you want tall wheat, you need to put a, uh, something like rye up on it, which is a, a, a homo type oxen. They'll get it going. And uh, but, you know, you know uh, a hairy vetch used to be a big one, but you need to do it after wheat. See, the limiting factor is the wheat acres are, are down. Mm -hmm. Not right. where they used to be. If if they can take, if they can plant more wheat, they can plant a variety of cover crops. Uh, I mean, that's my feeling. Wheat and rye is, is is two of the ones they relied on rye more because you know it grows a little bit taller. It's got a, a more vigorous root system than than wheat. <coughs> After wheat comes off, I love to have sweet clover, red clover, alsi clover, and then you have the volunteer wheat as the fourth one, right? So you got a grass, mm -hmm. you got red clover, red clover, and alcyc. Why? And I learned this over farm. The alcycus for the poorly drained, and if you've got acid conditions, the sweet clover is shallower, and the sweet clover is deeper rooted. And when you put four, chances are you get a, get a good catch with one or all of them, you know? And so I've all gone with that. Yeah, there's hairy vetch, I work with it longer than anybody, and there's the radishes, that's another option, but you need to put these on time. That's the critical thing. If you're in the south, you got a longer season to the year. If you're up north, you're really limited on time. You know, I always ask the question, you know, how about radishes? Uh, you know, how about, you know, hairy vetch? I said, when are you going to plant them? If it's October, it's no brainer. I don't have any, any, any choice except prior. Right. Wheat is a second. I mean, it's, and I'm not selling cover crops, you know, I'm not selling cover crops, so I have no reason to push one over the other. I like hairy vetch. Hairy vetch can produce a lot of organic matter, high nitrogen, good competitor, you know. But it needs to go in there after wheat, just as if you're planting double crop soybeans. You put hairy vetch in, but you can put sweet clover in. All, all depends whether you got crummy ground, you need to loosen the soil up, and anytime you have several varieties, it's it's always better than one. You know, right. I'm, I'm I'm here, but I I haven't found a variety that will grow in mid October, <laughs> at the end of October. You, you limit up north where I'm at. It just I mean that's reality. You know. So you've worked with a number of specialty farmers over the years, but you've been known and been successful for selling no-till to the Amish people. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, you know, my experience with the Amish is uh, real simple. They're the ones that, like everybody else, read about it. And I began in, in actually Wayne County and Holmes County, and an Amish drove in to see Tom Noyce, who's the county agent in Wayne County. And he was interested in putting uh, no-till corn. And Tom knew that I had worked in 
in, in, in Pennsylvania, in Smokestown and mm -hmm. the Lancaster area. And I said, fine. And the Alice Chalmers dealer was right there, Wiggly's. And I went to see the, the rep there and I said, can you put an Amish planner together? And I said, you know, what I need is a, is a four row planner. I said, the two row would be just fine. You know, he said, we'll, we'll work with the two row. And we drug that thing to Chris, you got it in your book. But you're pull, they were pulling these with horses. Yeah, with horses. Right. In fact, you got a you got right. a picture of it. Yeah. Chris Miller. Yeah. Okay. And, and here, and we went out there and we we planted and he could plant ten acres in one day. You know how long it would take him to plant and fit ten acres conventionally? Ten days to two weeks. See, I always thought the labor savings for Amish for the Amishmen, it's perfect, <laughs> you know. And 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 uh, you know, and then the then once you educate them on no tillage, and then the hybrid fix in and increase the nitrogen, and and this guy here can can cut his acreage by half. If he's planted twenty acres, he can cut it to ten acres and add a couple of cows. Okay. And, and then the yields were higher because uh, now, you know, you forced them to put 100 pounds of nitrogen instead of no nitrogen. He right. thinks the manure is going to do it. So uh, we went from that and and, uh, and, and really we, we just, he put a, just a hydraulic engine on it. So the farmer gets into the end, he turns it on and he lifts the planter and just goes with the horses, you know. I've had pictures of John Deere, 7,000. You know, you could pull a four-row planter with four horses easily. We demonstrated that right here at the Springer Farm. I'm not sure we were there when we, the Amishman brought his. I don't think so. Yeah, he brought his all his horses, and, and Neil slept slept with them because we didn't we didn't want to. He slept in the barn with them. <laughs> they were beautiful horses, and he planted. We demonstrated horses, and two steers. The steers weren't worth a hoop. They weren't used to pulling a planter. Yeah, you know, and uh, and they they can they can plant and fit. 10 acres in one day and spray it with a horse grass sprayer in, in, in less than an hour, an hour and a half, they're, they're done. You know, so there's a lot of benefit to the, the Irishman. They can lay, uh, you know, a uh, horse f feeds a lot, you know. When I got back, I'll have to show you uh, some of the Amish I work with, you, you know, with, you know, they're interesting to work because they're sort of all by themselves, you mm -hmm. know. I work with a plant growth regulator called Rise Up with the Amishmen, where they take this rise up and put it on pasture, and accuracy increases the growth of the pasture real early. And I had one, one Amishman, and I'll tell you what, you know, you don't want to take their pictures head on. You know, you always take it from the back, and uh, and he gave me one hell of a testimonial. I mean, you know, you, you get there and you laugh. You know, here, these Amish in Fredericktown, you know, I mean, they called me, they were dressed like Amish to me. I didn't know they were, shoot, they had tractors and cell phones and, you know, they're computerized and, and, and they, they do things in their own way, but they found 2,000 acres. And, you know, they, they take suggestions a lot quicker than a large farmer, better work grain farmer. You know, they put, they use rice up, they use a starter fertilizer, they use hybrids, they use probably the best concoction, rotation of chemicals. But they're on the phone, and the reason for it, they, they have a source to go to, you know. 
if they would just go to a dealer, he's got a thousand things on his mind. And, uh, and nobody wants to hire a consultant. They want free, free information. You know that. Right, right. You know, they get it for free, they were, you know. You told me uh, that the uh, leaders of the order at one time were not sold on Oh, no, no, no. I wish you, if I could find that article, I'd, I'd show you how, oh my God, you know, it was on one of the Millerwick papers. That he talked that, he, he talked to Mennonite, which Clayton Campbell, the menace, that's what he called him, because he's contributing, you know, getting me to talk, and he talked to me about this chemical rep, you know, he didn't name it. He didn't say ortho, but I knew who the heck he was talking about because he sat there at my meeting and he was taking notes for the paper. And, uh, and, and so uh, I learned real quick there that just because you do a good job putting a meeting on doesn't sell everybody, you know. And, uh, and one of the clients were the Amish that I worked with. I mean, they came in there, that planner, oh God, they were fighting over it, you know. Uh, we would rotate it thing from one farmer to the next. And they uh, and Tom Noyes, he did a good job, and I don't know, he burned I don't know how many how many pictures. Well, one Amishman took the zip seater, you know, mm -hmm. the zip seater, right. thousand pounds, and he had a uh, uh, what you call a you know the wheels with the with the he can he can drag it around, and he had his boy working in front of the zip seater, and, and I'm just wondering why is a boy working walking? And John says to me, uh, uh, Bill, he said I don't want him to miss anything. <laughs> so that boy walked right. 60 inches, walked the entire five acres, just so they wouldn't miss a little bit. You know, yeah. they wanted the alfalfa stuck in there, you know, so. Well, Bill, this has been a fascinating yeah. time this well, morning. So. I really appreciate it. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more with a reader anecdote. A few days ago on our no-till website, we published one of my favorite motivational sayings, which is called, use your head for more in a hat rack. Well, Hank Huber, who is a no-tiller, made a comment about it and said his dad, John, had sent him a picture that morning where they have 30 acres of alfalfa new seedings that they make each year. We handpick all the rocks that are bigger than your fist. And back when we were doing tillage, it usually would take three to four days with three to five people to pick 30 acres. And we'd get a loader bucket full of stones every round or two. When we switched to no-till five years ago, the rock problem kind of disappeared. This morning, my dad, who's 70 years old, told me he picked 30 acres of, by himself in less than an hour. So there's another reason to uh, no-till, forget about having to pick up the rocks. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and Bill Haddad for sharing these stories about the growth and development of no-till equipment and techniques. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.